Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Um, well, guys, if you have a Bible, why don't you take that out? We're in Ephesians chapter 5 today. We have three more weeks left in Ephesians. Can you believe it? Um, and this one's uh, an interesting one because it is on the theme of marriage. And we took a survey uh, a little bit over a year ago, and about half of you are married. So uh, I was like getting ready for this message and was a little bit uh, trying to s- just kind of parcel through that. Like, what does this mean? Um, also, even those who are married, that, that's varying degrees in terms of people who are just married, excited, happily married, those who are that strained or the sense of brokenness or healing that's needed, and those even uh, really considering if this is even going to work. And so I know that there is a variety of context in which this sermon is going to be hitting today, and so I am trusting that the Holy Spirit will do his work. That he will take this and he will work in us regardless of your relationship status and point us towards Christ, ultimately the picture that we have of him as our groom and us, the church, being his bride. And so I think there's so much that God has in store for us today. Um, And so if you guys have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 21. Uh, Before we start reading, I just wanted to remind you that uh, last week, this week, and the next three weeks are all formed under this one line found in Ephesians 5.1 that Paul is saying, walk in the way of love. So everything that comes after that sentence is underneath that umbrella phrase. And what's happening right here at this time in the letter is Paul's going to start referencing a common held belief called Aristotle's household codes. About 400 years before this was written, Aristotle, um, obviously you guys are familiar with him as a prolific philosopher, wrote in his book, Politics, of what he said the three spheres um, of, of the world. And he talks about husbands and wives, he talks about parents and children, and he talks about slaves and masters. And in the ancient world, that's what made up his framework, and that was adopted by the Greco-Roman world. Interestingly enough, what does Paul write about? Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. But he is presenting a critique of what Aristotle presented, and he is presenting what do those different spheres look like underneath the way of love, and it is startling. And so we're going to read this, and I want to just give you fair warning. You're going to hear words that are going to alarm you. You're going to hear phrases that sound um, archaic or challenging. I just want you to let those things hit you. Um, Don't explain them away or rush by them too fast. And then we're going to take our time walking through uh, exactly what this means for us today and how that would have hit the early audience as well. So Ephesians 5, starting verse 21, says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. 
Um, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever has hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However... Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Uh, if, if this is challenging to you, uh, as someone a part of the 21st century, I want to just let you know, this would have been challenging for them as well. And here's why. Growing up in that environment, in kind of the turn of the, the millennium in Ephesus, uh, they would have largely grown up with two conflicting worldviews and paradigms. I want to speak to those. Number one was Aristotle's, which we're going to read in just a second what he wrote about in terms of husband and wives' roles, which was also influenced by kind of the Jewish writers of that time, which Christianity came out from. So we have the Greco-Roman, Judeo worldview. And at the same time, we have uh, the people living in Ephesus, which large was influenced by the deity of Artemis. If you remember, the temple of Artemis was the focal point of the city, and the cult of Artemis, or Artemis worshipers, had a drastically different way of thinking about marital relations and thinking about husbands and wives. And so I want to talk about these two different frameworks and then how Paul presents something entirely different. But first, let's talk about kind of Aristotle's household cult. I want to read you an excerpt from his writings in politics. He says, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves, another of a father, and third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife, a constitutional role. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. We'll stop right there. You can just say yuck. You know, we, we know better, right? We live in 2023. Um, but as I was simply saying, the, the male is the one fit, fitted for command and rulership over the house and over the wife. Philo, a Jewish historian writing around that same time, writes this. Wives must be in servitude to their husbands, a servitude not imposed by violent ill treatment, but promoting obedience in all things. Parents must have power over their children, the same holds of any other person of whom the man has authority. So, we would call this radical patriarchy um, that led to countless forms of oppression of men dominating women. Now, like I said, there is another worldview present in that very room where this letter is being read, and it would have come from the cults of Artemis. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of insight into people who followed the cult of Artemis, what they would have believed. Number one is they would have believed her to be the mother goddess and the source of life, the one who nourished all creatures and the power of fertility in nature. Young women turned to her as the protector of their virginity, 
Barren women sought her aid, and women in labor turned to her to help in childbearing. It was believed that Artemis was the child of Zeus and Leto and the sister of Apollo. She sought the company of a human male partner instead of her own kind, instead of another god, thus making Artemis and the rest of her female adherents superior to men. Because of the belief of female superiority, the Artemis cult also taught that evil was brought forth by men. And many of you would say, yeah, I can get behind that. You know, it makes, makes sense to me. So as, as our current contemporary culture, we have watched a pendulum swing from patriarchy into radical feminism. We're somewhere in between that. But this letter is being written where both of these are in the room at the same time. There are people, and this is exactly why Paul writes this letter, is because they're having a contention around hierarchy and dominance. Who gets control? Who has the final say? Who is superior? Which means that when Paul opens up this section with this phrase, it would have shocked everyone in the room when he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He presents something radical then and radical now, and it's called mutual submission. Some of your Bibles, depending on the translation, doesn't start this paragraph with that verse. It starts it with the next verse, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. The problem with that is that's not when the paragraph starts. The paragraph starts with, submit one to another as unto the Lord. A matter of fact, the very next line says, wives, submit your husbands. If you read the original Greek, the word submit's not even in there. It reads better, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. It's now an assumption that submission is not the role of the wife, it's the role of the Christian. And he's just now riffing on how that is unique to the wife's role, and then he's about to get into what mutual submission looks like for the husband's role. And so this is a something that the world, uh, before that, all of ancient antiquity, there's nothing that ever presents anything like this, but we still have these problems with these terms. I mean, do we really have to use the word submit? And what does that word even mean? It's interesting, the word hupotasso is used 57 times in, in the New Testament for a variety of roles in a variety of ways. Did you know that if you are a Christian, you're called to, you are called to do this to all governing authorities, which makes, our cultural political landscape really tense. It says that you're supposed to do this to prophets. It says you're supposed to be doing this within the household. You're supposed to be doing this with church authority. So this is a general command given for lots of different things. So it shouldn't surprise us that when it gets to, when it gets to the context of marriage, it says this, you should be doing this. But the Greek word literally means to prefer the other, to come underneath the other. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you come underneath someone who's coming underneath you, who's then coming underneath the other? And I think it's kind of the point. It's kind of this dance, this beautiful thing where you're constantly trying to outprefer the other person. That Paul then goes into details of starting to explain this. But again, some of us in the room might just feel, but, but then Paul starts talking about how the man is the head of the wife. So doesn't that create some sort of hierarchy? And I would argue, no. The word headship is used over 400 times in the New Testament. And it is used almost entirely to talk about your cranium. Only a couple of times is it used to talk about a specific role. And when it's applied to husbands, 
It does not give you room to interpret of how that headship looks, which unfortunately happens all the times within Christianity. We interpret that simple word and to mean all sorts of different things. But Paul, every time he gives that title to a husband, directly refers them to Christ as the example. Meaning, Jesus is the way that headship looks. Which if you were to look at his divine right, ability, and dominance, it's never exercised while here on the earth. Even when he presents himself as a truth, he gives the opportunity for someone to choose him or not. And so there, even, the, even the term headship is given to, uniquely to the husband. It does not imply dominance because Christ does not use his headship for dominance while he's here on earth. Although apart from the earth, we worship and honor him, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Christ's example given to us here, which is largely framed in this context in terms of the cross. So if you want to know what biblical male headship looks like, look at crucifixion. And you may not want to be so excited about headship after all, because that's really the only context we're given for this word. Now, Paul does something really interesting. He points back to Genesis 2 and 3. He refers to this this as the example. So the question should be, is there hierarchy in Genesis 2 and 3? And the answer is yes, but it doesn't happen until after sin enters the story. The first time we see hierarchy, I would argue, is in Genesis 3.16. It says this. He's talking to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And that word desire is only used one other time in the Torah, and it's used in the next chapter talking about Cain trying to murder his brother and having the desire to do so. And so that word desire has this cynical negative bent towards it. And so what happens directly after sin enters the story, after the fall, is that as God is talking to him, says, listen, Eve, you're going to have a desire to dominate your husband. Adam, you're going to rule over her. This was not a part of God's design in Genesis 1 and 2. This is a result of sin. And so you might be looking at that and being like, well, aren't there other clues that there might be some hierarchy between like husbands and wives? And some people would say yes, and they would point to the the process that adam is the one who named eve and they would say that naming something is an ancient way of saying you have authority over it the problem with that train of thought is in genesis 16 13 hagar a non-jewish slave girl names yahweh el roy the god who sees me so if you're using that logic that the one who names have his authority over would mean that hagar had authority over yahweh and so that train of logic doesn't really hold up but then you might raise your hand, but well, doesn't it say that Eve is the helper, right? The wife is the helper, the man is the head. Doesn't that imply some sort of hierarchy? And again, I would say it's a, that's a pretty hard argument to make if you look at how that term is used throughout all of the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. It's used only two times to, apply, to be talking about a wife, both in Genesis. Every other time it's used, it's used for Yahweh helping out Israel in a military battle. The Hebrew word is called azer. So yes, Eve is called, the wife is called an azer, a helper, but so is Yahweh in the midst of his military strength. So again, there's no dominance attached to that title because it's used primarily for Yahweh, not for Eve. And so you have, these, you have this, this framework 
And then so the question, and this is where egalitarians would say there is no difference. And this is where, for me, I think that there's, it's a little problematic because it does seem, though, within the ancient text that although there is not a hierarchy of dominance, there are unique roles that are given. For instance, Adam is given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve's ever created. And at some point, Adam tells Eve that, or she learns about that. And when the serpent shows up to tempt them, this is really fascinating, the language that the serpent is using is in the plural tense, meaning the serpent isn't tempting Eve, he's tempting Adam and Eve. And in that moment, Eve tells the serpent that she's not even allowed to touch the tree or else she's going to die, which is not the instruction that God gave Adam. So something's happening there. And so as the serpent's tempting both of them, Eve takes the apple, touches it, and guess what? She doesn't die. And then she takes it and eats it and then gives it to her husband. Listen, guys, this is so frustrating for Adam. Adam's there the whole time. First, like, strikeout, right? And he's there. And then this is what's essentially happening. He's watching to see if Eve dies. He's there the entire time. He's like, yeah, you should. That looks good. You should try that. And then after she takes the, the bite of the fruit, he then takes it. Catch this. It says, then both of their eyes were opened after Adam took it. And that has another layer of this interesting element that when Yahweh comes to confront them and finds them in the garden and they're hiding beneath these fig leaves, he's not addressing them in the plural. He addresses Adam in the singular. And it's very clear in the Hebrew. He's talking to Adam. Where are you? Not where are you guys? Not where are y'all? Where are you, Adam? And what does Adam do in this moment when he's being confronted? He says, Oh, that woman you gave me <laughs> really messed this up. And this is, it's, it's so brilliant what, has, what's happened, what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 5. What he's saying is Jesus is the head that Adam never was. Because where Adam pointed his finger at his wife and let her take the fall for his fault, Jesus comes as the husband to us his, uh, us, his bride, and he goes to his father and says, please don't punish her, I'll take the punishment for her. He does what Adam was always supposed to do. He says, don't, See, he literally says, father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As he finds himself executed on a cross. That's what headship is. It is unique to the husband but not in terms of dominance or hierarchy, in terms of self-sacrificing protection, of saying, I will step before you. I mean, isn't that way? We kind of actually intuitively know that, right? Wouldn't it be odd if like an intruder came into my house and I held Jen in front of me as a shield? <laughs> Yesterday we had um, Augustine and Vienna, our two youngest, had their first soccer game, like not of the season ever. So it's always kind of like a little nerve wracking as a parent, like how are they gonna do playing like a brand new sport? And, and Vienna's there, and, and she's nine, and she's like just trying to figure it out. And halfway, and the, at halftime, they're like, okay, hey, who wants to be the goalie? No one raised their hand. And, and Vienna, just gracious, she's like, I'll do it. 
And I was just sweet, my sweet little Vienna. And so she puts on this, this jersey and stuff like that. She doesn't even know she's allowed to like pick up the ball. Like she's like brand new, you guys. But my fault. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're there kind of like coaching her and like for whatever reason, the other team just turned on the Jets and they're like firing at her left and right. And I'm like, dear God, help my daughter not get like her braces knocked like with the soccer ball. And luckily they're kind of missing it. But at one point, <laughs> This like this the like the, the kid who can, there's always one kid who can actually like play just kicks as hard as he can. It's coming right for Vienna's face, and this little tiny boy just jumps in front and like hits him in the like hits him in the chest. And Jen literally stands up and says, "Chivalry's not dead." <laughs> there was something though, and the, the whole crowd like erupted at at this thing that I think internally kind of know like that's that's actually how it's supposed to be right and i think unfortunately we have settled for cheap manipulative controlling versions of these words when that's just not present paul's makes it very clear submit to one another outdo one another in honor, prefer one another out of what? And he's telling the wives, out of reverence for Christ, out of, instead of what? Out of reverence for Artemis. Because out, out of reverence for Artemis, you would continue to exercise your dominance over your husband. He says, you don't do that. You submit your husband out of reverence for Christ, not because he's a great guy or he's doing everything right, because the chances are if you're married to a man, he's not. You know, like, but because of your reverence for Christ, but then he talks to the husband and says, listen, you don't, you don't get to play by Aristotle's household co- codes. You, got to, you get to operate as a husband the way Christ is operated in love towards you, which is laying his life down on a cross. I mean, do you start, are you starting to see the beautiful vision that Paul is painting for this church that is so countercultural than anything they've ever heard before? This is the way of love. So practically, this is our theology. What does our methodology look like? And, and, and my friends, there's, there's really good books written about this question. And so I'm not going to pretend to like do a whole other sermon on how this lives out. Uh, but I want to just give you five simple practices of what the way of love can look like in marriage. Number one, Practice listening graciously. And by listening graciously, I don't just mean that like you like pay attention, you ask a question, that's a part of it. But I mean, can you cultivate a safe place for that person to feel like they can actually be heard? That's the secret. What I find more often than not is not that someone's not listening to the words that are coming out, is that one or both parties within the marriage do not feel safe enough to even speak up. Are you creating a culture where both parties can be listened to and grace will be extended? Secondly, learn continuously. Your spouse, like you, are changing all the time. So who they were five years ago may not be who they are now. And what's amazing is we live in a time where there's so many incredible resources. Jen and I every year try and engage in a new resource, everything from the Myers-Briggs, or we, we read through How We Love, 
um, or the Enneagram. We have this one's favorite podcast we listen to repeatedly because it really describes each other. Um, we just went through Mike Foster's book, um, Seven Primal Questions. Uh, there's all sorts of different things you can do that gives you wording and language to who your spouse is. Consistently learn who they are. Why? Because the more you learn, the better it positions you to love that person. Thirdly, laugh intentionally. Now, this may just seem like a shallow one. It's not. Psychologists say that the number one defining factor that means your marriage will last is what they call positive reinforced memories, which essentially is a fancy way of saying you have to have fun. You just have to be friends. You have to enjoy one another. So it's not enough for you to be like, huh, that was actually a good time. That's not intentionality. It's intentionality to say like, okay, let's make time, space, let's put money and thought into how we can enjoy one another because that drives you into this, this thing you build a well that when life hits you hard and you experience loss, you have something to dwell from. The fourth one is to live missionally. Realize that your marriage is bigger than your marriage. A lot of times in Christianity, we've made, a, we've made an idol out of marriage thinking that it's some sort of functional savior, and it is not. God brought you together to accomplish a kingdom goal, which is the same reason why God has called some to singleness. He did not call some to singleness to accomplish a kingdom goal and then married people to get to go and just hang out. He calls us into marriage to accomplish a kingdom objective, a missional call. And most of the times within Christianity, people assume their missional call is their kids. It's not. Why? Because your kids will spend more time out of your house than they did in your house, meaning that's a short-term missions trip. It doesn't invite your kids into the mission. Invite them into what it looks like for you to live out the call of God that will span into eternity. And then the last thing which encompasses all of them is love sacrificially, which the opposite of that is transactional. The Bible does not give us any framework for you to love transactionally, meaning I will love if that means you will love me back in this way. I will give this much if you give that much back. I will tell you the reason why this doesn't work. We think we have like these two buckets. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pour like two cups of love into your bucket, and then I'm expecting two cups back into my bucket. And, and you're like, okay, it kind of worked. The problem is there's holes in your bucket. So you're pouring two cups in and they're doing it and all of a sudden before you know it, both of your buckets are depleting. Every time we meet with someone, Jen and I are meeting with a couple, they're both looking at the other person to just to own up that they need to love the other person more. I think the reality is they're both right. Both of them have not been able to love each other in the way that they are meant to love because you've been loving in a transactional sense. You are called to love in a sacrificial sense, meaning your love doesn't just come, isn't just reciprocated from your spouse. It's poured into you by the Spirit of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that fills you up, not only does that cover up your hole, it is flooding you, has the potential to flood you every single morning. Guys, there's, there's rarely a morning that goes by that I do not, in my, in my Lectio Divina journal, actively pray for Jen. But it goes something like this, Lord, you've loved me so well. You, you have treated me with mercy and grace. Help me love Jen like this today. Not, please help her love me the way I deserve today. <laughs> please help her realize how much I'm doing for her today. Now, that may be in my flesh. 
but God is calling me to love in a different way. And you may be sitting there and you're like, wow, cool, five points that all start with L. Awesome. How neat and tidy. I'm sure it's going to really help my marriage. I think it would. But I also recognize that there's people in this room that are just like, I, I think I may just be too far gone. Like, we've tried, but the reality is, Benji, our marriage is in a really tough spot. You may be sitting in this room considering talking or actively filling out divorce papers. And you're even cringing at the thought of having to listen to this message. I would just, could you listen to me the next couple minutes? If that's you, if your marriage is underneath the attack, there's a couple things I want you to consider. Number one, is, and which we often do not consider, is that we, and we're going to talk about this in two weeks, we're fighting a war not against flesh and blood. We have an enemy, an adversary, that desperately wants your marriage not to work. And if you think that that's not a part of the equation, it is. Second thing is oftentimes when we're facing broken hearts, trials, conflict, we treat it with the wrong things. We're like the, the prophet is Taylor Swift, right? We're trying to fix, we use Band-Aids to fix bullet, fix bullet holes, right? Beautiful words. <laughs> and so let me just give you three Three things you should be asking yourselves if you're facing distension within your marriage. Three levels of repair. Number one, there's broken expectations, there's broken hearts, and there's broken trust. All three of which require a different response. Early on in marriage, but it goes on through all of marriage, you will have broken expectations. You expected your spouse to do this, to treat you this way, to show up in this way, to know your love language, you name it. And you will have broken expectations. If that's the case, you need to approach that broken expectation with clarity and humility. You need to enter into that, and you need to be able to have like that safe space to talk through about those things, to look at what it, to, to prefer one another, have mutual submission activated. <clears throat> but oftentimes, multiple broken expectations or long seasons of broken expectations, or sometimes one large act, leads not just to broken expectations, but a broken heart. Like, you're, you're literally broken. There's something in you that has stopped connecting. It started to defend itself. And if that's the case, if you have a broken heart, the Bible makes it very clear you are to repent and to ask for forgiveness. That cannot just be lip service. That cannot just be buying some flowers and hoping that you get out of it. It means that you, with the sorrow of God, go to that person and say, I recognize what I did, how I hurt you. Please forgive me. And if it happens again, you do it again and again and again. The Bible is so clear that the people of God are marked not by moralistic perfection, but by humility, repentance, and forgiveness. So that has to be activated in your marriage. Uh, by the way, Jen and I try and model this in front of our kids. We want our kids to see us say sorry to one another. And not just like, hey, sorry, but like, would you forgive me? My kids have heard me get on my knees and say, Jen, I, I repent. That was not okay. And it's because our parents are, or our kids are watching, right? Not just how we're treating one another, but what do we do after we've hurt one another? But here's where things often go, go wrong. Is you can only have so many broken hearts until you have broken trust. Or there can be one instance that breaks trust. 
And oftentimes what happens is you try and repair broken trust the same way you repair a broken heart. You repent, you ask for forgiveness. And that person who's had their trust broken is unable to give you what you want. Because broken trust requires something entirely different than a broken heart. Broken trust requires healing and time. And here's what happens, I see it all the time. Broken trust happens. And let's say the husband is the one who broke trust this time. They will go and they will say this, I'm so sorry, please tell me what I can do to fix this. And they'll run as fast as they can into a solution. And they think they're helping, but what they're doing is they're actually dishonoring the process it will take for that person to heal. And so there's this sense where when there's broken trust involved, it's something we really don't understand, is sometimes you have to take the time for that to be. Can trust be restored? Yes. It's a beautiful and painful and a long process. But it is possible. There's nothing impossible with God. Theology 101. But you have to be willing to engage with it. And because of my time, I don't have the, I don't have the scope within this message to talk about how to repair broken trust. So I'm going to refer you to a book by Dr. Henry Cloud who just came out. It's called Trust. Um, I've been working through it. It's really, really good. Um, he gives you kind of six steps you have to engage if you want to repair trust. Um, and I would just encourage you on your own time. It's on Audible as well. Listen through it. Read through this. If this is your scenario in terms of, of you've had trust broken, um, this is something it can be done, but you, you just have to, you have to run at a different pace. You cannot sprint towards repaired trust. It's a marathon. So pace yourself accordingly. And you might be here and you just might be like, but is there, is there even, is it even worth the work? If my marriage is in shambles, is it really worth trying to actually give it the time that it needs to heal? And what I would just encourage you this morning is just to say a resounding yes. Now, please hear me. I am not talking about condoning abuse uh, of kind of a chronic infidelity. Those things do two separate things. If, again, if you are in an unsafe, abusive situation, you need safety, not healing. And if you're safe, then you need to engage in the healing process separately. But for those of you who are not in an abusive or a dangerous environment, but you are in a hurt environment, a painful environment, there is a lot of hope around those who are willing to engage the process. One recent study that I just, I just came, I just read about it this week, came out of Pennsylvania State University by Dr. Paul Amato. He says this, recent research shows that marital quality actually improves over the years for couples who don't split up. Specifically, although marital happiness declined slightly in the early years of marriage, it improved after about 20 years for most longtime married couples. While discord improved continuously over time, shared activities like recreation, eating dinner, or visiting friends together also improved after about 20 years. Despite a drop in the early years, the, the authors note that about half of all marriages last a lifetime and the long-term outlook for most of these marriages is upbeat with happiness and interaction remaining high and discord declining. This is a non-Christian study. It simply says, if you stick it out, you, statistically speaking, you are in a better position. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, is, by the way, if there's one book I can recommend to you on marriage, it would be this. 
He has this really interesting study that he presents. He says, although, he says, all surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high, about 61 to 62%, which is very different than what the culture wants us to believe. And there has been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. Most striking of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if the people just stay married and do not get divorced. I'm going to say that again. The longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married and, and do not get divorced. This led University of Chicago sociologist Linda J. Waite to say, the benefits of divorce have been oversold. Now, I recognize that research does not um, heal pain. But as I was praying this morning, and, and like I said, it's, just, it's, a, it's an interesting message to deliver because of the complexity of this room. Um, I was just praying, I was like, Lord, what are you trying to do? And I just felt so strongly, this won't even be on the screen, it was this morning, I just felt the Lord just reminding me of Isaiah 43. I just want to read this over to you. It's just a prophetic word over your marriage, maybe over the healing you're having over your parents' divorce. It says this, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Jesus, would you do that again? Would you just do a new thing? And also hear this too. If you've walked through divorce, if you've been widowed, this verse is for you too. God is a God who makes all things new. He has the ability to redeem and to restore in profound ways. They often are slower than we'd like, but they are deeper than we could ever imagine. And so take that and know that. Know that you're welcome here in this place as you walk through your own pain and grief of maybe being married to someone who didn't want to engage in a process of healing or maybe losing someone who you loved deeply. The last verse I want to leave us with is Ephesians 5.32. And Paul says this, This, speaking of marriage, is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ in the church. That's what I want us just to leave us with. Marriage is great, but it's never meant just to be an in and of itself. It's a mystery. Marriage isn't easy. It is beautiful, like most mysteries. But it's pointing towards something. What Paul is saying is, that, listen, all of you are getting it wrong. <laughs> this is about the way of love. It's about Christ. And if you live into mutual submission and the way of love, you will start to point yourselves and people towards what all of this is moving its trajectory towards, which is what? Revelations 19, 69, one of the last chapters in the Bibles, describes heaven as a marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb. John, his, in his account, says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a war of rushing waters, meaning this is a this is a very expensive wedding, right? Lots of people showed up for this one. Like rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. 
And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. My friends, Jesus has invited you to his wedding feast. And may your, if you are married, may your marriage remind you, would it increase your appetite for this moment? If you long to be married, know that you should be longing for this even more. If you're recovering from a broken marriage or the loss of a spouse, know that God is moving things towards restoration. This is what everything is pointing towards. I'm going to invite Matt to join, join me up here. Um, as we get ready to conclude, I just want to end you with this story. Uh, last spring, um, I had the difficult privilege of spending a lot of time with my grandparents as my grandpa was beginning to, to pass away. My grandparents uh, had been married for over 60 years. Um, small little, like Norwegian people, just precious as can be. And as my grandpa's memory started to go because of the dementia and Alzheimer's, and as his body began to fail, little by little he started not being able to know who people were except his wife. My grandma was the only voice he could recognize, the only name he could remember. No matter what day it was, what mood he was in, she would bring calm and comfort. And my grandma would talk repeatedly about how she would pray for him. God called her to pray for him. And their marriage had started very rocky, not walking with the Lord. Over time, moved into a home that was centered around Christ, a marriage that looked like mutual submission, the way of love looked like Christ. And as I watched them move to this moment of grief, I was so curious how my grandma would respond. And My grandpa passed away with my grandma as the only one in the room, which was actually really meaningful to her. And as we went to go be with my grandma after my grandpa passed, oh, my grandma, how are you doing? And she says, you know, we've been preparing for this moment our whole life. She says, I, I know I'm gonna miss him so much. She says, but this is what we've been waiting for. And I was just thinking about, I was, I was so fixated on their marriage, like how, what does it take to be married for over 60 years? And I realized that for them, they were focused on what Paul says is pointing towards another marriage. They were pointing towards the marriage supper of the Lamb, the invitation that my grandpa finally was able to cash in on and check in and the end of that party. And my grandma now grieves him, prays continually, and eagerly awaits the same moment. I think it's really beautiful for me as someone I'm so thankful for my marriage. And I've been married for 17 years this month. And it's been, I know, give it up for her. Someone had to do it. God chose her. I'm so thankful for my marriage. If, if, even if you just have that, there are really good marriages. I love being married to Jen. We're very different. And then we've, got, we've walked through really, really hard things, both that have been external and things that have been internal. But I recognize more and more as I get older that God didn't just bring her into my life because we were compatibly matched or because it would make life easier. But I realized she is the greatest catalyst in my life towards Christ-likeness. 
the encouragement and strength she gives me, how she draws out my own selfishness and my own insecurities, all of which points me towards Christ-likeness, which is what? Preparing me with fine linen, bright and clean, the righteous acts of God's holy people. And that's the beauty of marriage. That's what Paul is saying. He says, you guys are getting it all wrong. It's so much deeper and so much more beautiful than you could ever imagine. So regardless of where you're at, could we end our morning? Um, I'd love just to sing Holy Spirit again and let that just stir in our hearts a sense of longing for the gift of the Spirit of God in our lives, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then also for those who are married, use the time just to pray for the Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to love not out of your own ability, your own strength, but out of the strength and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand to your feet with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sounds kind of funny, but thank you for choosing to marry us, to be the groom and to choose us as your bride. It's so humbling. Oh, we know that we've been unfaithful. We know, Lord Jesus, that we have walked away from you, yet you continue to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, I pray that we look to the cross often, Lord Jesus, not as a, a point of sorrow, but as a point of an example of how we ought to love one another. I pray for the marriages in this room, the ones that are enjoying each other to the ones that don't know if they can hang on. Would you breathe your life into these marriages today? Spirit of God, would you rest on them? Lord, those who are recovering from their their parents' failed marriage, maybe their own failed marriage, maybe the loss of a loved one. Spirit of God, would you bring comfort? Would you bring healing? And Lord, would you draw us in to a new way, the way of love? And Jesus, we lastly would say, we just can't wait. We can't wait to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, to celebrate with you your love and your goodness towards us. Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship and pray. Thanks for listening to the Light Church podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.